You are listening to The Depression Session at 99.1 FM Downtown Radio. Each week, we'll have a new guest tell the story of their depression. I'm your host, Laura Milkins, and thank you for joining us on The Depression Session. Just a note for my listeners, I want to make sure you understand that this is a show about depression, and some of the content can be triggering, so please take care of yourself if something on the show brings up difficult feelings, and seek professional help if you need it. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Depression Session on Downtown Radio. Today we have with us in the studio Becky Wilkinson. Becky is an artist, art therapist, and identical twin. We'll be right back with Becky, but first let's talk about the gym. So as any of you who struggle with depression know, going to the gym is very helpful. And yet, if any of you are gym goers, you know it is difficult to get into a routine and get your exercise, even though you know it's good for you, especially when you're depressed. I have been having a really good stretch with not a lot of depression and feeling quite fantastic. Part of it is leaving my job (laughs) and just having a whole semester off. I'll be back in the spring teaching a couple classes. Part of it is that. But honestly, I still can't get into a routine. Even though I'm doing really well, even though I know it's good for my mental health, I worry more about my mental health in regards to exercise than my physical health. Uh, I tend toward healthy and reasonably active and, you know, but I know that exercise where my heart rate gets up will extend my life, but mostly I'm there for my mental health. And I just decided to look up a little article about getting into the habit of working out. And this is from the Elite Daily by Georgina Burbari. And it's called How to Make Out a Habit You Won't, How to Make Working Out a Habit You Won't Quit. Sticking with a new workout routine can be extremely challenging. This basically means making it a behavior that comes automatically and without thought because you've done it over and over in the past. The constant repetition leads to automaticity, which leads to lack of thought. Bottom line, Nike is onto something when it tells you, just do it. Sleepwalking to the elliptical because of lack of thought sounds lovely and all, but the question is, how long does that shift in thought process actually take? According to a study published in the European Journal of Social Psychology, it takes an average of 66 days, approximately eight to nine weeks, for someone to effectively form a habit of any kind. But how can you make sure to stick to your new routine without ditching it within the week's time? Personal trainer and nutrition coach Paula Marquez gave Elite Daily some awesome advice on how to hold yourself accountable. She says, my advice is that you plan your workouts in advance because this will be crucial to your success. Schedule your workouts as quote unquote meetings, adding them to your daily to-do list. This will guarantee that you don't forget about them and will hold you accountable. Marquez also suggests getting a workout buddy to join you in your new routine. Accountability is super effective, especially when someone else is counting on you to show up. So I actually do have my workout on my calendar. I was doing it at four in the afternoon and I did it for like three weeks and then just found other things that I wanted to be doing, like painting my birds and I stopped going or taking a walk with a friend, which is exercise, but I like to be in a routine where I get some good endorphins every day. So I switched it to the morning and I went again for a couple of weeks and then 
found some reasons why I didn't go in the morning and told myself I'd go in the afternoon, which of course is a lie. And I know this is a lie because I don't go in the afternoon if I scheduled in the morning. There's always something else that gets in the way. So I talked to a friend of mine, invited her to be my buddy and go to the gym with me, and we still haven't done it. <laughs> so I'm going to try once again to get mm. up in the morning and just go. Because I went, I, I went really seriously for a couple of weeks getting up every morning, and it was just you know four days ago that I've been not great about going again. But I just want to remind myself, like, it's good for you. You feel so much better when you do it. This is all fine and good. And I, I'm pretty sure I've had many times in my life where I figured out a treat at the gym, like going in the hot tub or the sauna or something that would get me to go every morning because in the winter here, it's cold. You wake up, it's 40 degrees and, oh, go you, you just have to be in the hot tub. You don't have to work out. Now it's a lie because when I get there, I'll work out, but it'd get me to go to the gym. I think the real issue is I'm sure because I'm doing well, I can get into it. The problem is, is when you're having real depression. And because I'm not experiencing depression right now, I want to be in a routine when that train comes along again. So recommitting again today to do it for these eight or nine weeks before the semester starts in the spring and be going every day until I miss it if I don't go. Because I know what that feeling is. Because when that train comes along with depression, I want to be already at the gym. I'll have my pick-me-up in the morning. Because when you're really depressed, you can't start a routine like that. Or I find it extraordinarily difficult. So any of you who are struggling with that, especially with the change in weather, and if you're used to doing a morning hike and now 6 a.m. is a little cold, find, find a routine you can stick to. And I hope you all have a lovely week. Thanks. Today we have with us in the studio Becky Wilkinson. Becky is an artist, art therapist, and identical twin. Hello, Becky. Welcome to the Depression Session. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for coming. Yes, lovely. So what's new with you? What do you want to share with our audience? Well, what's new is that I had a really rough start today and it got better. And I will say that for me, when it starts out rough, sometimes it just keeps tanking. I'm an art therapist, as you said, and... I, you know, I do the work, I help people, but I sort of quickly spiral into, you know, you could call it uh, depression, but also just difficult experiencing. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. what I call it. And so thankfully today started out poorly. I'm an extrovert. So oftentimes being around people helps and people help today. And then I got to see some really beautiful artwork when I came here. And art is really inspirational. And being an art therapist and seeing your art, Laura, which is, it, I mean, it's so rich that it kind of takes me out of myself, which I think is also something kind of related to depression. Like I get very absorbed in myself. So I want to find ways to be extracted without having to do too much work. So thank you for sharing your art. Yeah, and it's it's great. We tried to set up this meeting a while ago, and this is the day we could do it. Mm -hmm. And when I talked to you before, I was doing bird drawings, but I hadn't gotten into this series, and I'm obsessed. Yeah. And I find, and this is why this will be so great to talk to you, when I'm doing artwork like I am now, full-time pretty much every day, four, five, six hours, whatever I feel up for, whatever I'm into, I want to do it every day. I'm excited when I wake up to work on it. 
when I'm in that space, my depression often is often a backseat. And I've been talking to a friend recently about the balance scale of anxiety and depression. And I almost feel that I mostly have anxiety and depression is its cousin. So when my anxiety gets too high with pressures at work and relationships and family and stuff, that is when I get an overload and then depression comes in because I don't want to do anything, go anywhere, see anybody. But I feel like it's some, it's, it's, I think I almost just mostly have anxiety that gets blown, blown, blows me completely off course. And then it's depression or looks like depression. So when I'm making artwork, everything seems more in balance. Nice. Yeah. And so in, in your, in your awful day today, <laughs> did it, did it, was it just life getting in the way or like, a, if you well, don't mind me being no, 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 no. I mean, it's a little bit part of my story, but you know, I, I, I mean, in studying what it means to be depressed, but also kind of the nuances of how it emerges for me, like you're talking about anxiety And I have a lot of anxiety too. And I know that also clinically speaking, we literally have a diagnosis of depression and then we have a diagnosis of depression with anxiety. And I always wondered about a chicken and an egg kind of thing as well. But there's also something that I learned about recently, which is, you know, these words optimism and pessimism, which are kind of generic terms. But there's a way that pessimist and I don't think of myself as the most pessimistic person. I mean, there are moments when I'm really hopeless and that's my depression, but just in my normal day to day, I'm not like, Oh, it's all going to pot, you know, blah, blah, blah. But when bad things happen, it really F's with me. Mm. And so, you know, today it started out with, I couldn't get the TV to work properly and my husband is away. So he's the technologist. Mm -hmm. And then I go to my computer and I can't get my email. And I'm just trying to find your address. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I don't have her address. And then I'm meeting with a client and my phone isn't working. And I'm watching like the power and I'm trying to, you know, very subtly charge. But all of this is raising me to a pitch. And I'm just so easily thrown off of center. And I mean, I can even feel it as I'm talking about it. You know, it's just like, it's literally both of us are like gesturing of our stomachs rising up. So that vulnerability, it, it, you know, my instinct is to just say F it. And I, I really just didn't want to go to work. But the minute I got to work, I ran into a woman, like I, you know, in my mind, everybody is, you know, nobody's cooperating and everything is difficult. And then I get in touch with this woman who is there. She's doing her own workshop on photography. And she actually is somebody who I went to the U of A with in the art department. And she's this kind of impish spirit. And she's, she's very playful. And I'm like, okay, just play. And so I let her sort of distract me from myself and then suddenly I feel better and because really I just I had to run a workshop with people and I was like I don't even want to be around anybody right now I just feel like screaming and then it's like water just rushed through it and it's all dissolved but it's not far away and so that vulnerability to me I mean I kind of got distracted from what your question was but let's say that today it started out poorly it got better but there's a way that I'm kind of on edge and I sort of know it. 
And I already got the signal because I was, you know, the way this day started, I was not, I had no equanimity about all of these. I was like, everything is messing with me. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I relate to all of that a lot. You're not resilient when you're in, when you're having one of those days, you're vulnerable and you're not resilient. And our, this is the thing I've been thinking about because I'm taking a break from teaching and I actually am taking a break in a big way where I'm only doing what I want to deal with that day. I ha- I owe the hospital some money and I'm ignoring it right now because I'm like, meh, it's all right. I don't feel for that right now. <laughs> and it will all be fine. I mean, I've been in communication with them and I could have sent me to debt collectors and I just don't feel like it. Yeah. And there'll be a day when I feel like it and I'll do it that day. What a lovely thought, yeah. Yes. Yes. And like I just feel anxiety. like, <sighs> yeah, yeah. Because the anxiety is always like there's something that's supposed to be happening. Yeah, There's something I'm supposed to be on top of. So I've been thanking mm. my anxiety for getting me here. Mm. I've been thinking of it as like a little bitter gift where all of that anxiety is motivating. The depression is demotivating and the anxiety is very motivating. But it, it, and it got me through college. It got me through graduate school. It got me through my first job. It got me through a multitude of situations. It got me through bad days of teaching because it revs you up and you wake up in the morning with the things that you're going to do. But the downside of that is it's, it's very wrecking. So now I'm like, thank you, anxiety, for all the things and the ways that that sort of motivation got me through life, like those gifts. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Now shut up. I don't want to do that right now I don't have to do that right now very nice and it's it's hard because my natural go-to is go 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 do 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 be 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 and right now I'm like no only thing you really need today maybe you'll do some birds if you feel like it yeah how nice that you feel like doing the birds too that there's something that you're passionate about on that note, mm-hmm. so Becky, tell us the story of your depression. You know, I have to say that I really do think, you know, I told you I have a, a twin sister and it's interesting because there are all these pictures of us when we were young and in the pictures, I was the firstborn, I'm, I was bigger and I'm usually in front of my sister, but there's this look of either defiance or consternation on my face. And my sister always looks sort of like, a deer caught in the headlights, but one who is not unpleasantly surprised. I mean, she's sort of like, what? But there is sort of a naive, let's say, innocence, whereas I look troubled. And and I definitely was a lot more troubled than she was. You know, I, I mean, she went kind of straight through school and I went to many, many different schools. I mean, I was literally shipped everywhere and anywhere because... I had a difficult time finishing anything. And and as far as when we talk about things like anxiety or depression, I'm not sure that I recognized at that time that I was depressed. I do remember in high school, after I had finally ended up in Mexico City, not it's not that complicated of a story. My father was a foreign service officer, and I'd gone to boarding schools and high school, you know, public school, and finally my father had taken a post in Mexico City with my new stepmother, and they were like, you know, we've got to do something, so he sent me to this American school there, and I remember having, I don't even know what triggered it, but I remember having an episode of such profound crying 
that it, it just wouldn't stop. And there was such a, a feeling of emptiness that was petrifying. And it was something that I became reacquainted with at different times of my life. This underneath things would lie this profound emptiness. You know, maybe there would be a breakup of a really important relationship. And I would just, you know, I would re uh, encounter this emptiness uh, that was petrifying, really, is the word. But oddly enough, so this is kind of happening in my quote unquote personal life. And I'm really just trying to find ways to make it in this world. And I'm an artist as well. And I, I was always interested sort of in psychology. And I, I, you know, grew up as an artist here in Tucson. I went to the U of A. And I didn't seem to be able to find a way that I enjoyed doing art. In fact, when I did art, I, I think you're a little bit more introverted than I am, but I'm, I'm making assumptions. So I'm quite an extrovert. And when I would sort of be in the role of what I thought an artist was supposed to look like, which was in a studio painting all day, I hated it. And I also didn't particularly like the gallery world and, and I, I didn't really identify, like Dave Moyer, you know, uh, who was the person that we met through. Dave was my boyfriend, and Dave was this completely devout artist. And he, you know, everything for him was about his art. He would make unbelievable sacrifices just for the sake of art. And I just did not identify at all with that persona whatsoever. And so I needed to find a place in the world because I was lost. I knew that art was something, and I heard about this field, art therapy. So I went into art therapy. It's, it turned out to be something quite different than I thought it was, but I love it even more. And, and mm -hmm. thankfully, I did actually find a place where I belonged in the world. So I'm developing this career as an art therapist, but I'm still really quite lost as a person. And... I think that one of the things that really gave me a clue of what the work that I needed to do was that I was in a relationship with a person who was still a very, very close friend of mine. But when our relationship ended, we'd been together for about four years, I realized how just completely bereft I was as a human being. And that was... 25 years ago, and I feel like the, the, the preceding 25 years have been the process of building a self in a somewhat fragile encasement, my body, with a fragile, tenuous sense of self. And, and I say that because I'm a therapist, and I can look at myself clinically and say, wow, you know, I see people who have a very strong core sense of self, and I'm not that person. And so I recognize my vulnerabilities. And I work, I work very, very hard to shore up a fragile self. And I never expect myself to be, even a Dave. Uh, and I describe Dave as somebody who is very um, resolute in his sense of self. I'm also married to somebody who has a very, very solid sense of self, and I can witness it and admire it and, again, recognize that that's not me. So going along with this story, through the evolution of my career, I've worked 
in psychiatric hospitals with people that were in, in crisis. And I, oftentimes I would say, uh, that's me, just like one step away from being me. What is it that keeps me from being that? And what keeps them on a good day from being in the hospital? And, you know, they perceived these patients. And at the time that I started my career, I would be more private because there's this idea that a, a therapist is supposed to be sort of a blank slate or something like that. I don't necessarily tell patients now that I work with that I have a history of depression. I just make it clear that I'm no different than they are. I don't go into my story. I just say, we are human beings and some of us are more fragile than others. And I don't differentiate which one I am, but I know which one I am. So as far as I'm concerned, even looking at patients, some of them were much healthier than I was because they bounced back quicker. Their sense of self was stronger. Maybe their faith was stronger. There were all sorts of ways that I would begin to differentiate what makes somebody unwell? Is it a diagnosis? Is it a sense of self? What's the difference? Th these questions, and I still answer these questions for myself. What I, what I started to look at is what keeps a human being well? And so I would start to ask my patients questions like, on a bad day, what does it look like? Well, you're suicidal, you're in the hospital, you're hopeless. For me, it was, I'm hopeless, I feel empty inside, I have no energy, I interpret humanity as broken, and I believe that there can be no good. I actually existentially believe that, but I feel this, you know, and I can't step away from it. Sometimes I'm tearful when I'm not strong. My body hurts. I've got a lot, I have a very fragile body, so at the slightest interruption. I am either in pain or listless or, or not sleeping well and, and just kind of white knuckling the day. So, so I would ask my patients those questions and I would ask myself that question. And the answers were so very different because you can have a person with depression and the way it looks for them is very different than the way it looks you and I. You know, it manifests so differently. So these diagnoses sometimes are not that helpful because, you know, you have your criteria for depression, but not sleeping well, you know, low energy, but what does it really look like? And then I started to ask the question, what does it look like when you're well? And then how did you get there? And what keeps you there? So the things, it took me a long time to figure out what really got me well, and then to actually experience the wellness more than the not well. And I, I would sadly say that it's taken me 15 years to be on the other side. What keeps me well is sleeping is the most important thing, sleep. If I don't sleep well, then everything is altered. My people, my husband, my best friend, and then just really limiting what I attempt to do and, and noticing what I have done so that I, I just drastically reduced my expectations about myself as a human being, which was a real disappointment because I said I have an identical twin and she's very energetic, really just able to take on tremendous ventures in her life. And I don't have that capacity. So for me, I've got like maybe three to five hours in a day where I can be extremely productive. And then I'm sort of supporting that 
for the other hours, and I'm doing a lot of preemptive work. So getting to know the the subtleties of my vulnerabilities and also using my strengths, which are people, my, my core group, art helps me because it relaxes me. It, 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 but I, I don't do as much art as you do because it loses its utility after a while. Because I'm an extrovert, I need to break it up. But probably, sadly, the most important thing is my body. And, and it's a fragile thing, so I always have to maintain my physical well-being because it's so drastically altering, like not just the emotional, but the whole sensation, because I'm a feeler. So it's all being channeled through my body, which experiences anxiety, so I have to like tone it down, and sleep seems to be the best agent for that, and then reducing the amount of stimulation. Okay. Yeah, thank you so all much right. for your story. I Absolutely. Yeah, I wanted to talk about several things in there. One of them was just, there always is this kind of nature versus nurture thought process that goes through my head. And I was talking to a friend about this recently, that like the Japanese believe that children come in with all these different personalities and part of your job as a parent is to kind of tame them. And then Americans believe that children come in as this blank slate and you fill them with all of this purpose, mm. right? And of course, I, I kind of think neither is right or wrong. Like there's parts of each of that are, that are true. And when you have an identical twin, and I have another friend who is an identical twin, to have your bodies and your emotional makeup be so different, I always believe that people come into this world who they are. And then, of course, nurture is incredibly important, too. But, that you know, my friend who is an identical twin, he has Crohn's. His twin does not. They've studied him because they're like, wait a minute, this is supposed to be genetic, right? So I just think that part of your story is really interesting, that you have a genetically identical person who is extremely different from you. So I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. I mean, I, I am with you in, in the belief that people come much more package than we realize. And part of that is that the work that I've done, I have a business partner who is, interestingly enough, she and I are both extroverts, feelers, intuitives, and perceivers. So on the Myers-Briggs, and we're super loaded on all of that, except that she, her name is Joya, and she is joyous. She's just naturally buoyant. And I have never been and when I work with people, I'm kind of assessing, and usually people have always been what they are, and they attribute mm -hmm. much of what's happened even to trauma, and trauma does have a, a tremendous impact, but it's usually, this is what we do know from identical twins, is that you will have a propensity, and then circumstances will make something emerge or manifest more than others. But you have this DNA that is being called into action by environmental circumstances. Um, but that DNA is laid out already. So, And I see this in the strengths that people have. Because just like you have vulnerabilities, you have the strengths. And the work that I actually do with people is finding out what their strengths are. And then that's the way you in induce the change. Like you were talking about exercising. And the way that I get people to do something is I find out what energizes them and their strengths. And then the pain that's driving why I want to do this. But if there's something that they want to do, I want to exercise, then that's the motive. So there's the carrot and the stick. 
But the way to get there is going to be through their personality. Like me tricking myself by saying, you can just hang out in the hot tub. You don't have to work exactly. out. And yeah. then I show up because I'm like, well, that sounds like fun. Yes. Well, I might as well exercise a little bit. I'll do the hot tub afterwards. Exactly. So, the, you know, you've got the reward, but you also, now we know that you like hot tubs and comfort, that kind of thing. Right. It, it, the way to affect, like the way that I work on myself is through both my strengths and my, I have the strength of temperance. So, which is self-control. So I, it's really easy for me to exercise because it's just a part of my personality to do things like that. But certainly the pain is that if I don't exercise, I'm going to be in pain. My husband and my business partner, they, they have the strengths of indulgence and appreciation of the moment, Mm -hmm. which is a flip side of also being relaxed and not anxious, you know? So there are all, all these ways that you can see it, but certainly my anxiety, it also is something that I can harness because it's, you know, I just naturally have that self-control or we call it temperance, but the strengths or your character is where you are going to find the roadmap to your wellness. Right. If that makes sense. Like it's right. not going to be in a recipe that somebody Hands. gives you online. Unfortunately, that's yeah. the problem. That's what I had discovered when I was working with people with mental illness was people are always telling them what you need to do instead of saying, okay, let's mine this person's personality to find out what the way that is going to help them. Right. To stay well. Another part I think about learning about yourself is learning what you really need with people, what you want versus what you need. And then being able to have relationships where you can explain that or somehow work around those things so that you're actually helping other people and getting help. And that is a perfect way to end this show. Right on. <laughs> Thank you so much. For Absolutely. Being on the Thank session. you for having yeah. me. Wonderful to be here, Laura. Thank you. I want to mention again that if you found some of the content of today's episode triggering, please seek professional help and call 911 if you feel like hurting yourself or others. I'm not a licensed therapist, and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. To listen to the podcast, or if you're interested in being on the show, contact us at www.thedepressionsession.com. You've been listening to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio Tucson with music by Septa Helix. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Depression Session Podcast. Thank you.